Chapter Two of the Land of Frozen Suns. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Land of Frozen Suns by Bertrand W. Sinclair. Chapter Two, by way of the New Moon. Lights by the thousand speckled the night enshrouded waterfront when I reached the slip where my boat lay. On the huge roofed-in wharf. Freight handlers swarmed like bees. The rumble of hand trucks and the tramp of feet rose to the great beams overhead and echoed back in a steady drone. Lamps fluttered on vibrating walls. Men moved in haste, throwing long shadows ahead and behind them. Boxes, bales, barrels, Sacked stuff vanished swiftly down three separate inclines to the lower deck of the Memphis girl, and from the depths of this freight-swallowing monster came the raucous gabble, freely garnished with profanity, of the toiling stevedores. Out from under that vast sounding board of a roof the noise at once diminished in volume, and I passed through the heart of the dust and babble and gained the cabin deck of the Memphis. A steward looked over my ticket and guided me to the berth I had reserved. It was then half-past nine, still two hours and a half to the time of departure. I took a look around the upper deck. Quite a number of passengers were already aboard. Some were gone to bed. Others were grouped in the aft saloon. One or two poker games had started, and little groups were looking on but of them all i knew not a soul youth hungers for companionship and i was no exception to my kind it may be a truism to say that nowhere can one be so completely alone as in a crowd but the singularity of it never came home to me until that night but we are always learning the old things and esteeming them new i roamed about the memphis wishing I had stayed uptown till the last minute. It had been my plan to go down and turn in. The ceremony of casting off was not one that interested me greatly. But now the whim was gone. A spirit of unrest, an impatience to be off, drove sleep from my mind. If you have ever known the dreary monotony of waiting for train or steamer to start when your whole being craves the restfulness of motion, you will not wonder that I made one more round of the deck and saloons, and then left the Memphis to roam aimlessly past the serried wharves that faced the stream. I don't recollect just how far I wandered. If the place had been strange to me, I should likely have been more circumspect in my prowling. As it was, my only concern was to be at the S.S. Company's wharf by midnight, and midnight was yet afar. So I poked along, stopping now and then to hang over a railing and peer across the dark sweep of the Mississippi toward the Illinois shore. Between, the lights of diverse craft twinkled like fireflies and tootings of major and minor keys with varying volume of sound went wailing through the night. A big passenger packet, hailing from upriver, swept into view. Ablaze from her bow to the churning stern wheel, she bore down like a floating villa strung with yellow gems. 
a band blared dixie from somewhere amidships i was young enough to have some degree of enthusiasm for such spectacles and i turned on to a long half-lighted wharf and walked to its outermost tip to get a better view of the puffing river monster with its thousand gleaming eyes until she came abreast and passed i stood there watching in a careless way i became aware of two men strolling out on the wharf in fact i had passed them near the entrance gate i remember that the swell from the big packet was beginning to slap against the wharf wall when one of them edged over and asked me the time like a simpleton i hauled out my watch to tell him it did not occur to me that there might be any purpose behind the question the river front in st louis was not a place where one could safely exhibit signs of affluence in the way of cash or jewelry and i knew it i hadn't grown up in a city without knowing some of its ways no doubt it looked like an easy game out there in the end of a deserted wharf my watch was a plain hunting case affair with a fob without an inkling of what was to come i turned toward the dim light as i sprung the case open in that instant the fellow struck the watch out of my grasp with one hand and smashed me full on the jaw with the other a vicious pugilistic punch i went down curiously i didn't lose consciousness and the blow gave little pain but it paralyzed my motor nerves for a few seconds gave me a queer helpless feeling in my legs and arms such as one has in a nightmare it passed though and the pair of them were just going through my pockets with a celerity that bespoke much practice when i recovered sufficiently to jab my fist into a face that was bent close to mine at the same time driving both heels against the shins of the other fellow with what force i could muster this instinctive outbreak rather surprised them, I think. Anyway, they gave ground. Only for a moment, however. I made one valiant effort to gain my feet, and they were on me like twin wolves. Kicking, striking, struggling like primal beasts, we three lurched this way and that on the brink of the wharf. A hundred yards away people were hurrying by and if I'd had sense enough to realize that a shout was my best weapon, I could easily have routed the thugs, but I was too frightened to think. And in a very short time, sheer weight of numbers decided the issue. One of them got a stranglehold about my neck. The other clasped me fervently around the waist. Thus they dragged me down. For one brief instant I rested on the hard planking, my head in a whirl, their weight like a mountain on my heaving chest. Then, with a quick shove, they thrust me over the edge of the wharf. Undertaken voluntarily, a twenty-foot dive is no great matter, but it is a horse of quite another color to be chucked into space and fall that distance like a bag of meal. I struck the water feet first, as it happened, and came to the top spluttering, half strangled, but otherwise none the worse. Right quickly I found that I'd merely exchanged one antagonist for another. 
the current set strongly out from the wharf, and it cost me many a stroke to get back to it, and then I saw that I was no better off. Contrary to the usual thing, the piles offered no avenue of escape, for they were planked up, a smooth wooden wall that I could not possibly climb. I felt my way toward shore, but the outsweeping current was too strong. So I hooked my fingers in a tiny crack and proceeded to shed what clothing still burdened me. Of my coat, only a fragmentary portion remained. It had been ripped up the back in the fracas above, and the side containing my ticket and most of my money had been torn clear off me. There was little left save the sleeves. My shoes and shirt and trousers I cast upon the waters with little thought of their return, and then, clad in a suit of thin underclothes, I struck out for the next pier below, thanking my stars that I was a fair swimmer. But I could not make it. The channel of the Mississippi threw the full head of a powerful current against the St. Louis side at that particular point. It struck the wharf-lined bank and swerved out again with the strength of an ocean tide, and I was in the outgoing curve of it. The next wharf was not for me, nor yet its fellow beyond. Steadily I was carried into midstream. Shouting for help across the black space that lay between me and the wharves soon exhausted what wind and strength I did not use up in a footless attempt to swim against the current. I stopped yelling then. It seemed to be sink or swim, and I began to conserve my energies a bit. Slipping along in plain view of myriad lights, hearing the fiendish screaming of steamer whistles, seeing the moving bulk of them dimly in the night, I felt in no immediate danger. Not half as much alarm disturbed the soul of me as when the fingers of those nighthawks were clawing at my throat. I knew I could keep afloat an indefinite length of time, and some craft or other, I reasoned, would pick me up if I failed to make shore. By and by I wrapped my hand smartly against some hard object as I cleft the water, and gripping it I found myself the richer by a four-foot stick of cordwood on its way to the Gulf of Mexico. This served to bear me up without any exertion on my part, and gave me that much better chance to buck the current. I was now well out from the wharves, and straining my eyes for passing boats. Far down the river the piercing shriek of a siren split the momentary silence that had fallen on the stream. A drumming noise was borne up to me in a fitful night breeze. From behind the black loom of a jutting wharf a steamer appeared and came throbbing upstream. Now she was almost on me, the heart-like pulse of her engines and the thresh of her great stern-wheel deadening all the other sounds which that vast river surface caught up and bandied back and forth. Remorselessly the current bore me into her path. At first I had strained every nerve to get in her way. But as the black hull with funnels belching smoke and deck lights riding high drew near, I remembered that if I missed a hold on her side, 
I stood a fair chance of being sucked into the flailing paddles. When that filtered into my cranium, I backed water in hot haste. But I had gone too far, and her speed was too great. In another minute I was pawing at the slippery bulge of her waterline, and striving to lift my voice above the chug of the engines as she slid by. The wash from her swung me away and drew me back again, and just as the nearing thresh of her broad-paddled wheel struck a chill of fear into my quaking heart, my hands fouled in a trailing line, and I laid hold of it more tightly than ever drowning man clutched the proverbial straw. It was a small line, and the strain of towing me was great, but it held. In the tiers of cabins above my head, lights flicked out one by one. Again and again I called, bellowing upward with the regularity of a fog signal. No answer. No inquiring face peered over the rail. The docks slid by. God only knows how long I dangled at the end of that bit of twisted fiber. The glow-worm lamps of St. Louis twinkled distantly on the left, rapidly falling astern. The thin line wrapped about my wrist numbed it to the elbow. I changed hands from time to time, in peril of being cast adrift. Fervently I wished for my bit of driftwood. The onrushing demon to which I clung offered less hope of succor. In a little while longer I should have cast loose from sheer inability to hold on. The strain on my arms was exhausting, and the least shift soused me under water, such was the speed. How I should have fared then I do not know, but in the nick of time an answering hail came from above, and when I had established the fact that a human being was clinging alongside, a cluster of heads and a lantern or two appeared at the rail, and a rope ladder came wriggling down. Cramped and sore and weary as I was, I climbed thankfully aboard. A knot of passengers surrounded an officer whom I took to be the mate. A deckhand or two stood by, eyeing me curiously as I heaved myself on deck. The mate held up his lantern and took a good look at me. "'You look some the worse for wear, bucko,' he volunteered indifferently. "'How long you been hanging on to us?' I began to explain, but I dare say my appearance hardly lent an air of truth to my words. He cut me short with an incredulous shrug of his shoulders. "'Tell that to the captain, or the purser,' he interrupted sharply. "'Bilk, you steer him to the pilot house. I'll be there in a minute.' He turned on his heel, and Bilk motioned me to follow. As we passed forward, I wondered on what sort of craft I had landed, whither bound and how good my chance was of getting back to St. Louis and making a fresh start. The first of these queries I voiced to Bilk. "'She's the new moon,' he growled. "'Through freight to Bismarck, Cow Island, and Fort Benton. Stop? Nah, she don't stop for nothing, only wood.' 
End of chapter 2